Do please sit down. And let me invite you to turn to your Bibles. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 4. You'll find it in the church Bibles right in front of you. Romans chapter 4. And we're looking this morning from verses 4 through to 5. I hope you are enjoying the seasonal weather. It was particularly interesting yesterday, wasn't it? Snow, 8 in the morning or something. Um, We love Chicago, don't we? Love it. Well, we're coming now to God's Word, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, and uh, this is picking up uh, this uh, series in Romans. We looked at Abraham last week, and this whole chapter is about Abraham and his faith. Paul now has a couple of inserts into that narrative, these couple of verses, and then after that, David, as he fills out what it means to have a faith like Abraham. So let's pray now together as uh, we come to his word. Let's pray. Our Lord, uh, we have sung that uh, your word is an excellent foundation, a firm foundation. And um, we've also sung that uh, the soul, the person who rests on you, you will never, no, never forsake. Uh, These are truths that many of us hold dear. Some of us are still exploring. Others perhaps have questions about. And so as we come now to this part of the Bible, uh, we pray that you would help us to see how it all fits together, how uh, the truths that we sing, that we declare are indeed true, how they uh, can impact our lives, and uh, in particular, in what sense uh, that foundation is so solid, so firm, we pray we would see this morning. So we ask these things in Jesus' name and pray that this would happen by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So turn with me now to Romans chapter 4, and let's hear God's word. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Well, these uh, couple of verses here have a lot in them. And if we're to grasp the power of what Paul is saying, we'll need to understand uh, the technique with which he's saying it. It's a literary technique that is uh, called today juxtaposition. Juxtaposition is placing two contrary ideas, dissimilar ideas, contrasting ideas right next to each other for effect. So let me give you some examples of juxtaposition so you can have that in your mind and understand it. Then we'll see what Paul's saying here and then we'll apply it. So here are some examples of uh, juxtaposition. Um, Many of them are in popular movies. For instance, if you ever saw Jurassic Park, Uh, there's a dinosaur at one point that's about to envelop an escaping jeep and the camera shows the dinosaur in uh, the rearview mirror and you see underneath written objects in rearview mirror are closer than they may appear. It's uh, It's a juxtaposition. Enormous dinosaur and then it's for dramatic effect. Another well-known movie has uh, lots of scenes of war and aggression, battle, warfare, well-known newscasts of particular um, war events, and then in the background at the same time is playing 
the um, classic song from Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World It Is. It's a juxtaposition. Or less aggressively, perhaps you saw the first Star Wars movie. By the way, all the rest are not as good, are they? first Star Wars movie, you did see it, um, there's this scene towards the beginning where the rebel troop uh, ship is flying out, as it were, of the camera. It looks pretty large. And then a moment later behind it comes this massive uh, star destroyer. It's a contrast intending to dramatize a sort of David and Goliath effect. Two ideas, very dissimilar, right next to each other, visually, uh, in literature as well. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. Uh, Dickens is beginning to, uh, his book, A Tale of Two Cities, um, a juxtaposition. Or in, in his Christmas Carol, it's not two literary statements right next to each other, but all the way through the Christmas Carol, there's Scrooge, so rich, and then there's employee, so poor. It's a juxtaposition, a contrast of two ideas for dramatic effect. Or the poet Dylan Thomas, perhaps his most famous line is this, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Again, a contrast, a juxtaposition. See it in modern art, surrealism has a lot of this, all these different ways of putting two dissimilar ideas right next to each other for dramatic effect, to, to dramatize what the author of the movie, the book, is trying to communicate. Now, Paul has a juxtaposition here. Now, obviously, he's trying to do something different from any of those books or movies. He's trying to say something different. But you need to understand this contrast, to have it in your mind, visually, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, to grasp it in order to feel and understand the power of what Paul was saying. Otherwise, you'll just read through this and go, you know, doesn't do this, does do this, justify the wicked, obligation, works, no, not works, faith, and you won't really grasp the power of what Paul was saying. So verse 4 is in strong, deliberate contrast to verse 5. They're right next to each other for a purpose. And they're really contrasting two very different approaches to God. Well, the first in verse 4 is, as it were, the normal, common human approach. And the reason why it's so common is because that is how life normally works. Uh, that's, that's life, isn't it? You do an honest day's work, and you get what is due to you. You get your... It's, it's your obligation. It's what is your right. It is what is your reward. For an honest day's work, you get an honest day's pay. And so we think that's how it's going to work with God as well, because that's how things tend to function in the world almost all the time. So we say there's no such thing as a free lunch. And that's uh, verse 4. You've got to work if you want to be paid. And even if there is a gift, the title for the sermon this morning is The Gift, even if we receive a gift, outside of certain sort of family contexts, you know, Christmas or birthday, but outside of that, in work um, and in other contexts, you can begin to wonder whether it's got strings attached. In other words, someone's giving you something so that they hope that you'll give them something in return. That's typically how life tends to work. And so that's exactly how most people think religion 
uh, is as well. It's how God um, relates to us too. It's how life works, and therefore it must be how God works as well. Uh, Actually, though, this idea is deeply flawed. Uh, Nonetheless, it's exactly how almost everyone approaches God. Paul will say it's not how God rescues, that's verse 5, but almost everyone approaches God according to verse 4 because it is the religious view of God. It's very different to the Christian view, verse 5. You could say, as we said last week, the Christian religion is the one religion which is not a religion. It doesn't have a verse 4 view of how someone gets to heaven or how someone is saved. It's not about earning your salvation. No, it's verse 5. It's about living out your salvation in response to what is genuinely a free gift. This is a completely different view of how God relates to us. It's utterly unique. Only Christianity has this, uh, this view. And so Paul here is putting these two approaches right next to each other, verse 4, verse 5, as a juxtaposition. He's trying to dramatize the uniqueness of Christianity. So you have verse 4, how life normally works, and therefore how people think that their relationship with God will work too. Natural enough, but completely wrong. And now in verse 5 comes this massive contrast, sudden shift. Uh, there's the dinosaur in the rearview mirror, as it were. To the man who does not work. Really? What could be more shocking? The man who does not work is the one who is saved in the end, the man or woman. And then to add shock to shock, Paul then says, the one who is going to be justified is the one who trusts the God who justifies the ungodly. In fact, there's one uh, proverb reasonably well known in the Old Testament which says that God cannot stand those who justify the wicked, which seems to be almost in direct contradiction to this. Obviously there in Proverbs it means that God doesn't want people to say that doing wrong things doesn't matter and let people get away with it in politics or in society. And that's not Paul's idea here at all. Nonetheless, it is a shocking statement. God is the God who justifies the wicked. And Paul's trying to get us to see the shock, to wake us up of our religious lethargy and realize the shock of who God is and what he actually does in order to save us. The best of times, the worst of times. It's a contrast to dramatize a message. Uh, Perhaps uh, you have in your mind some series of things that you cannot imagine ever doing yourself. And if someone did those, then it would rule them out of court. It would rule them, it would be almost indefensible for someone to do that. And here's the list of things that occur in your mind, wicked things. Paul is saying, God is the God who justifies the wicked. It's shocking. should be. Once we see this juxtaposition... And once we see it, we immediately will then have a question. Why is God like this? Paul doesn't explain that here. He's just letting the shock hang in the air. What a wonderful world, playing to sounds of bombs and war. 
But we don't need to think long and hard before we have an answer to that question, why God is like this. The Bible presents a view of God, which is that He is most glorified, not in creation or all the massive natural brilliance of, of quantum mechanics, which as someone once said, if you think you understand it, it only means you do not, and, and mountains, um, which exist apparently in some other part of the country other than this. And, and, and sunsets and sunrises. And, but actually, God is most glorified somewhere else. He has set up the whole of reality in such a way that who He is will be revealed, His glory be shown, not just as a maker of everything, not just as a sustainer of everything, not just in His raw power, but that God is a rescuer. God is a wooer. God is a lover. God is a redeemer. And His glory is most revealed at the cross. So there's this great contrast, juxtaposition. Well, then uh, we've explained it. How can we apply it? Many different ways. Here are just uh, some ideas. Number one, the first uh, perhaps is that it can give us freedom to serve. This seems to be what always takes place when someone really grasps the meaning of this passage, this gift that is all by grace. Why does it give someone freedom to serve? Well, someone comes to church, they feel guilty, and then what happens? They hide. They don't come forward and volunteer. They feel unworthy. And then along comes this message, and it says, well, yes, of course you are unworthy, and so is everyone else, but if you trust the God who justifies the wicked, He counts your faith as righteousness. I love the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther once received a letter from someone asking to come and join them in their church, in their movement where he was at the time. And Luther wrote back to this man saying, yes, you're more than welcome to join, but just remember this, when you come to us, we are all strong sinners. God justifies the wicked, namely us. So it gives you freedom to serve. You don't have to wait until you're perfect before you begin. It gives us confidence to go and build something, do something. God has justified us so we can get on and get started with whatever it is that He's calling us to do, whatever opportunities He has before us to share about Jesus. Who am I to share about Jesus? I haven't kept all the law. I'm not a terribly good person. Well, God justifies the wicked. That is your message. And so it gives you freedom to serve. Let me put it like this. This confidence gives us an eternal confidence. What is it that will give us the certainty of standing before God on that great last day and being declared right. Well, it's not verse 4. It is only verse 5. This shocking trusting the God who justifies the wicked. 
If you really grasp the contrast, the juxtaposition that Paul is placing here, then when it comes to your deathbed, whether it is 96 or 26, you can have the confidence that you will be able to face God on that last day and be righteous. But God is the God who justifies the wicked, even your wickedness. Let me put it like this. This is the difference between people who are faithful unto death, even when they're being threatened with being beheaded, and people who go around beheading because they cannot otherwise be sure they'll make it to paradise. Without this confidence that God is the God who justifies the wicked by faith, what will happen? Well, if you have any kind of strong view of God, we'll become the kind of people who will do anything to get there, to get to heaven. We'll sell indulgences, we'll pay penance, we'll do this or that act of religious ceremony, anything, even killing people in some religions in order to be certain of our ticket to paradise. But if we have this confidence... Well, then we know there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither death nor sword nor anything else. This is the kind of bright-eyed certainty that overturned the Roman Empire and replaced it with the kingdom of God. And you can do it again today. Whatever the challenges of our secularism in the West, with this kind of confidence, suddenly a spiritual army emerges that wants to go forward with Jesus, confident not because of what they have done, but because of what he has done. Suddenly the church of God can then move with clarity and conviction. Well, you say, but I'm so wicked. God is the God who justifies the wicked. You can tell your friends about Jesus without feeling like a hypocrite, because God is the God who justifies the wicked. Let's take it from another point of view. So many people have so little self-confidence in terms of how they think about themselves. In other words, they're always listening to um, messages or stories or books or TV shows that will tell them how special they are because they want to believe that they're special and handsome and clever and beautiful and all the rest. And yet somewhere deep inside, they realize that these things are just masks. And so however many of those kind of messages they listen to about how you're so wonderful and so special, <laughs> they realize they're not actually so wonderful or so special. And so what do we do? Well, we don't sink into depression. No, we rise to great confidence because we trust the God who justifies us just as we really are. Just as I am without one plea, as the old hymn puts it. Well, again, let's take it from another more deeply spiritual point of view. This is the answer to spiritual temptation from the devil. The devil is the great accuser. He always comes along and tells you how bad you are, how wrong you are, how you don't deserve to be here. If how all these other people really knew who you were, they would hate you and not want you. And he whispers in our ears, and what's our answer to that? The answer is the shield of faith that God is the God who justifies those who trust him. That your faith is counted as righteousness. And so you hold up the cross, not in some sentimental or irrational way, 
but you, as it were, say, look, this is how bad I am. I am so evil, so wicked, so bad that it took the Son of God to die on a cross. And yet he did die on a cross for me. Get away from me, Satan. God justifies the wicked. And so it changes our view of church as well. Church is a hospital for sinners and a school for saints at the same time. How is that possible? Because the saints are sinners too. So it gives us confidence. But let me just apply it one other way. Not only does it give us confidence, it gives us joy. And when I say joy, I don't mean a certain temperament, wherever you are in the Myers-Briggs sets of temperaments or all the rest. You may be a naturally happy person. God bless you. We love you. Keep going. (laughs) But I'm talking about joy. That is, here's how I define joy. Joy is living in the face of God and seeing Him smile. It is something lasting. Well, how can you have that? How can you live in the face of God and see His smile only because this is the God who justifies the wicked? Only if you trust God who justifies the wicked can you see the smile of God as you look in that face. Of course, there's awe, fear, respect, adoration. This is a holy God, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God is holy, and yet this holy God is the God who justifies the wicked. And so with this fear and awe and wholeness comes a thrill of acceptance and then of joy. As if you stood before a great king in all his awesome majesty, and he looked at you and singled you out and smiled at you. living in the face of God and seeing His smile. Well, finally, let me put it like this. This gift, this uh, person who trusts the God, who justifies the wicked freely and his faith is counted as righteousness, what does it do? It puts everything else in perspective. So you come in this morning and there are challenges at work, at home, at church, in your ministry, at school... And now here's the shocking contrast. The man who does not work but trusts. And so the whole thing is put into perspective. Perhaps you have a child. You're fearing that they're not doing the right thing. What hope is there? There is hope in the God who justifies even the wicked. No one is too far away from God. Puts into perspective what we have done for God too, even if we've done many good things for a long time. Think of Jesus' parable, the workers in the vineyard. The one starts early, the last group starts late. They all receive the same justification. It's not too late for someone on their deathbed. It's not too late for you. Right here, right now. To put aside your trust in your works, in your good deeds, in being a credible businessman and being intellectual and knowing a lot and being upstanding and being handsome and being able to know the right thing and being able to know the right answers. Instead of all that, 
we trust the God who justifies the wicked, the person who does not work, that is, does not hold up to God all the good things they've done, but instead solely and purely and completely trust the God who justified the wicked. His faith is counted as righteousness. Nothing else will work. Only that. While we come to the communion, and what could be more appropriate? Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for this teaching, this contrast, this juxtaposition that emphasizes the truth the one who does not work but trusts you who justifies the wicked, their faith will be counted as righteous. We pray that that would be deeply embedded in each of us and that therefore we will live with strong confidence, joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.